Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians read through the book of Concord and discuss what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we're going to cover Article 9 from the Epitome of the Formula of Concord, looking at what the issue is that needs clear confession with regard to the teaching on the descent of Christ to hell. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is the Reverend Dr. Jason Guller. He is the pastor of Pilgrim Lutheran Church in Kilgore, Texas. He is also one of the translators that worked on a translation of Luther's third sermon on Easter Day, which was preached in Torgau in 1553, and this translation was published in Logia, a journal of Lutheran theology, who has graciously allowed for us to post this translation with this episode on kfeo.org, so you can find that there. Pastor Geller, welcome to Concord Matters. Good afternoon, Pastor Smith. It's my pleasure and privilege to be here today. Well, it is certainly an honor to have you on, and I mentioned the fact that that sermon translation is available on kfeo.org and that our listeners can go check it out there. And again, thank you to Logia for allowing us to post that, and thank you for translating and working on that. But as we'll see as we get into this, that sermon shows up here in our Lutheran Confessions. It's cited as a source connected with our teaching. So it's really great that we have that available and can reference that, and we'll certainly be talking about that in the show. But before we get into the article from the epitome itself here, you're going to notice that today's show is a little bit different than what we've seen in the epitome of the Formula of Concord so far. Usually we have that nice format where we get the status of the controversy, looking at what the issue is that has come up that needs clear confession, and the confessors kind of set it up there what the issue is. Then we get the affirmative statements, which are just the clear statements of what we believe, teach, and confess, that wonderful phrase that we get there, and that's what we believe, teach, and confess from Scripture. And then we get the negative statements, which are the statements of doctrine held by others that the Lutheran confessors are rejecting and condemning because they stand against Scripture in their teachings. But here in Article 9, it's a little bit different. We start out with the status of the controversy, but we don't see that format where we get the affirmative statements and the negative statements. Instead, we just have four paragraphs talking about this article. So, Pastor Geller, go ahead and what's going on with this article here? How does this fit in with the rest of the formula of Concord and what it has confessed in the previous articles, and, and what's going on with this article? Yeah, there was some controversy, apparently, during Luther's own lifetime regarding Christ's descent into hell. He preached this sermon in 1532, 1533, so if we think about it, you know, after the catechisms were written, after the Apology, the Augsburg Confession, and the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, prior to the small called articles, if we kind of place it in chronological order. So the sermon itself 
had been preached and was out there and eventually published and people would have been aware of it. But it wasn't that that in and of itself quelled all the controversy about Christ's descent. And so after Luther died, there continued to be some controversy. And eventually then when it comes time for the Formula of Concord, it was one of the issues that they felt worthy of addressing in the Formula of Concord and then ultimately, obviously, in the Book of Concord. Uh, It comes in sort of near the end of the formula. And as we go through the text, you'll see that it does sort of relate to the preceding article, Article 8, on the person of Christ, insofar as we need to rely exclusively, to some extent, on faith and not on our reason and our senses, as we'll discuss. And it sounds like they would have, in an earlier draft of the Book of Concord, Formula of Concord, the Torgau book, have gone on at greater length. The book was getting long, and so to some extent, there was a need to sort of shorten the treatment of the article on the descent. And so this sort of quick reference to the sermon and a quotation, the work of a portion of the sermon instead of the full sermon, all sort of reflects a need to sort of be brief about it. But it's also in the final position that they take, doesn't really need some great lengthy exposition. So it's not just thrown in as sort of an afterthought and gets short trip, but does have a good standing and status in the formula. I like how you really connected, especially to the previous article, The Person of Christ. And we'll see another point of connection, too. I think that it it references right away in the first paragraph when we start reading it here in a second about the question of, did Christ descend into hell in the body or only in the spirit? And that's part of the issue that they're looking for a clear confession on this as well. And I'm with you that then the main point that relates to the previous article is this is a matter of our faith and not just by our reason. And that's certainly connected with that whole, how did Christ go into hell? Did he go body and soul or just in the spirit? And that was part of the issue going on at the time as well. And carried over to that, obviously, is the whole nature of the incarnation and whether or not you can have part of the divinity of Christ separate from the humanity of Christ. And so issues that come up not only in 8 on the person of Christ, but also in 7 on the Holy Supper, the notion of the different types of presences and where Christ is present and how he's present, all of that has implications for this article on the descent. And so its placement sort of after that makes sense. It wouldn't have been as brief or really had worked as well if they had made it, you know, six or something like that instead of putting it where it is here after the article on the person of Christ. Yeah, and it's really important to see that logical progression. That's something that we try to highlight here quite a lot is that this is a work of true rhetoric and logic in the progression from article to article here. It's not just kind of a scattershot of, you know, we need to clear up this issue and need to clear up that issue, but there is a progression here, a logical progression. And mm-hmm. so you're right. Yeah, it definitely ties back to seven as well, which we saw with eight. Clearly, eight proceeded from when they were talking about seven, the Lord's Supper, that created the issue of, well, what we really need is clear confession on who Christ is. And so while this particular controversy itself, not directly related to those discussions, is still part of the same sort of issue going on that needs clear confession. And so I think kind of the linchpin there is, who is Christ? And that will form our theology on all the other matters. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's go ahead and read the article itself. As I said, it's just four paragraphs, so we're going to read it in its entirety. 
And once again, on this show, we read from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available to you from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. This is Article 9 from the Epitome of the Formula of Concord, The Descent of Christ to Hell. The article has also been disputed among some theologians who have subscribed to the Augsburg Confession. When and in what manner did the Lord Christ, according to our simple Christian faith, descend to hell? Was this done before or after his death? Did this happen only to his soul, only to the divinity, or with body and soul, spiritually or bodily? Does this article belong to Christ's passion or to his glorious victory and triumph? This article, like the preceding article, cannot be grasped by the senses or by our reason. It must be grasped through faith alone. Therefore, it is our unanimous opinion that there should be no dispute over it. It should be believed and taught only in the simplest way. Teach it like Dr. Luther of blessed memory in his sermon at Torgau in the year 1533. He has explained this article in a completely Christian way. He separated all useless, unnecessary questions from it and encouraged all godly Christians to believe with Christian simplicity. It is enough if we know that Christ descended into hell, destroyed hell for all believers, and delivered them from the power of death and of the devil, from eternal condemnation and the jaws of hell. We will save our questions and not curiously investigate about how this happened until the other world. Then, not only this mystery, but others also will be revealed that we simply believe here and cannot grasp with our blind reason. Thus far the epitome. All right, so Dr. Geller, this is very clearly a different sort of article, especially in the Book of Concord itself. And we really highlighted back when we went through, especially I remember the Apology of the Augsburg Confession on this show, how at times it almost comes off as boastful the way that the confessors write the Book of Concord, a little bit of snark maybe even, and just really forceful. This is clearly what we believe, teach, and confess And we can certainly be boastful with St. Paul when it comes to the matters of Scripture where it is very, very clear and we want to refute all contrary teachings to that. But here it takes on a very different sort of feel than what we tend to see in the rest of the Book of Concord of just that simple humility that says, this is what Scripture says, we believe it, and we really don't have much else to say about it. So why is that the case for this article? Well, it's interesting, of course, that you said this is what Scripture says. Because when you hear this article or when you read this article from the epitome, as you just did, then you have no reference here to Scripture at all, right? The sort of text that they're referring to is Luther's sermon. And when we talk more about the sermon, we can talk about to what extent Luther there is even expounding a specific biblical text. There, he really seems to be more expounding the simple statement in both the Apostles' Creed, and the Athanasian Creed regarding Christ's descent into hell. And so the epitome here raises the specific question at the beginning, when and in what manner did Christ descend, and is this part of his passion or part of his victory and triumph? So there's sort of three key questions that they recognize are sort of in dispute. And then they go on in the second and third paragraph to talk about the need to not use reason and senses, but to use faith, and that it should be taught like Luther taught it, explains it in a completely Christian way, separating all useless and unnecessary questions from it. But they don't answer those questions. 
they don't answer the questions that they raised in the first paragraph. And even when they get to the fourth paragraph, they don't directly answer those questions. They sort of hint at some answers to them, talk about what the main point of Christ's descent is, the comfort that it has for us as believers. It is enough that if we know that Christ descended into hell, destroyed hell for all believers, and delivered them from the power of death and the devil, from eternal condemnation and the jaws of hell. That is enough as far as the authors of the epitome are concerned that we understand about Christ's descent. That does not address when it was. It does not address what manner descent it was and whether it was part of the passion or part of the victory and triumph. So it's interesting that on this particular issue, this article here in the epitome, you don't have an explicit scriptural foundation. I'm not saying that there isn't one. I'm just saying that there isn't an explicit one. And that even though they raise those questions in the first paragraph, they don't specifically answer them in the paragraphs that follow. So let me ask you this then. We'll back up just a little bit. I I think you've highlighted a lot of great things and a lot of questions come up for me there that we can certainly follow up on. But I think maybe a good starting place is this, is that you're right. They don't actually even cite scripture here. And you referenced how this comes up, of course, in the Apostles' Creed and the Athanasian Creed that both include references to Christ's descent into hell. And sometimes this is a problem for some Christians, maybe not to the listeners of this show. It's probably a self-selecting sort of audience to listen to a show that goes through the Book of Concord and the Lutheran Confessions. But sometimes when we make confessions of our faith, if we don't specifically cite Scripture, some people get twisted and all bent out of shape about that. But clearly, we are confessing this from Scripture, and I just kind of moved in with that. But what are the Scripture passages? Are there any Scriptural passages that give us the case to make this sort of confession in the first place? And how does that lead into, then, what our confession is? Yes, well, there certainly are Scriptural texts, I think, that we would say directly relate to Christ's descent into hell. And so... Down here in East Texas, in our little world of the Bible Belt, and surrounded by a lot of religious traditions that, you know, it's not about creeds, and and it better be able to be demonstrated from Scripture. I think you can certainly make the case that there are scriptural passages that support the teaching about Christ's descent. The the one I think that people would, would go to first is really 1 Peter 3, and this is around verse 18. And if we want to just take a quick look at that, we can. So if we look at 1 Peter 3, round 18, it's really not the point that Peter is making about Christ's descent. He's really talking about something else. Suffering for righteousness sake, for example, is the way that the ESV has that section. But when you get down, reading from the ESV, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, 
with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So just those five verses there from 18 to 22 in 1 Peter 3, there's so much going on there. Frequently we hear that one little phrase, baptism now saves you, excerpted out of all of that and used in the baptismal rite of Lutheran service book and so forth. So we're familiar with some of that. And Luther's flood prayer and this idea of the ark being the means of salvation through the water for Noah and his family. So some of that part of that may be more familiar to people than the earlier part, verse 18 itself, that Christ was put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. And then verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. We have to always be careful here that we're not suggesting that there is some second chance for the people who are in hell to believe. That's frequently what people will do with that verse and say, oh, Christ is going down to hell to preach the gospel to them and giving them some new dispensation, some new opportunity to repent of their sins and believe in him and be saved. Well, no, that's not how we understand that. We understand that he descends into hell. Uh, He proclaims victory, to be sure. I mean, you see this in CFW Walther's Easter hymn, uh, all sorts of Easter hymnody that talks about Christ going to hell and declaring victory. The same way he rises from the dead on earth and declares victory, he has descended into hell and has been declared victory over sin, death, and the power of the devil to the devil and his dominion directly. So the proclamation there is an important part of understanding what's going on in the descent into hell. And this question of, is he descending in the spirit only, or is he descending also in the flesh, really is, again, partly because of this text, I think, one of the reasons why it's in dispute in Luther's lifetime and in the lead-up to the Formula of Concord that drives its inclusion in the Epitome and Solid Declaration. So 1 Peter 3 is a typical text that's used there, and it's not necessarily the basis for Luther's sermon. I mean, he really doesn't speak to it there. Luther, in his commentaries on 1 Peter 3, will talk about the descent as he deals with this verse. And it's sort of interesting. He says, in sort of a typical Luther fashion, in German and in Latin, there is in Zwiltuhok, non intelligo. So he combines German and Latin to say that this is too high. I'm not able to understand this. And he confesses his inability to understand it both sort of as a German Christian and also as a Latin educated theologian, that this is not able to be understood exactly what is being said here in 1 Peter 3 regarding this in the flesh and in the spirit. So some debate over that, and then they use the sermon as the basis really for the article, and the sermon itself does not rely on First Peter 3, but that isn't to say that First Peter 3 doesn't deal with the descent. So there are, there are other passages, too. We note in the introduction to the sermon as we published it that there's references to Psalm 16, allusions to Ephesians 4, the teaching that our Lord Christ does about the stronger man who comes in and binds the strong man, that's in Matthew 12 and in Mark 3 and in Luke 11, that sort of idea of the stronger man coming into the house of the strong man and binding him and taking his possession. 
I think to some extent we're reluctant to picture our Lord as a bandit, but that's really sort of what he's doing. I mean, it's his own teaching that he comes into the domain of the devil, binds him, and takes that which otherwise appears to be his. I mean, ultimately, we would argue that believers belong to God first, but by their fall, they have become sort of the possession of the devil, and then our Lord rescues them out. So the teaching of the stronger man binding the strong man and taking his possession permeates the sermon, and it really is is at the stake here also in the article as we have it in the epitome. That's that whole fourth paragraph. It's enough that we know that Christ descended into hell, destroyed hell for all believers, and delivered them from the power of death and the devil, from eternal condemnation and the jaws of hell. And, and that, again, is that image of the stronger man coming in and taking that which otherwise appears to belong to the strong man. Luther cites other passages in the sermon, some of them more related to the descent, some of them more related to the resurrection, which he also treats in the sermon. But I think it's sufficient to say that there are biblical passages, there's a biblical foundation for the teaching on the descent, even if we don't get you know a chapter on it or something like that, like we might on some other specific theological topic. Which I think is a really important point to make there, too, that when we talk about Christian teaching, it's not just about proof texting. And I know that we've covered that on this show several times before as well. And it's something that I think needs re-emphasis again and again. And I think you highlighted that really well with just laying out for us exactly what Luther did in his sermon, which I think you said... First Peter 3 is not even the basis of Luther's sermon. If anything, it's maybe more the creeds. I think that's what you were telling us. Right. And, and, and this is true that, you know, when we give our Christian teaching, as Luther does himself, it, it takes into account the whole body of Scripture, right? And we're going to be referencing different aspects of it. And that's simply how we do Christian teaching. That's simply how we do Christian confession. And so we're drawing from all of Scripture and not just one text for proof texting, Though, certainly, as you highlighted as well, we do even have a simple, clear teaching as it comes to us in 1 Peter 3 that clearly Christ descended into hell. And we got to let Scripture confess what it confesses there and drive our teaching. And so when it goes against our reason, and I love how you reference for us Luther's bringing this up, that he brings it up in the German and Latin and just says, you know, this is too high for my thinking, but this is the clear Christian teaching that we have from the entirety of Scripture. I had a Sunday school teacher around the time that I was confirmed who used to just say, I may not understand it, but I believe it. And that one sort of expression I always thought was really helpful, that he was an older gentleman and a longtime faithful believer and as young teenage boy, to hear him say, I may not understand it, but I believe it, this submission of reason and our senses to God's Word and the ability to confess that boldly, that it's okay when there are things that we don't understand about the Christian faith. Yeah, certainly as the article here says itself, that's a completely Christian way to confess our faith. All right, so we're going to pick up more about the sermon after our break, but with just a couple minutes before break, Anything else you want to highlight specifically about this article itself before we move on to talking about the relationship of this sermon coming into it? Sure. I think when we when we look at the Solid Declaration, we see that there are some places in the Solid Declaration where the questions that the epitome doesn't really answer, we find are answered by the Solid Declaration. It addresses the matter of 
the chronology by saying that the descent comes after the burial. It addresses the manner by saying that Christ is descended into hell, the entire person, human and divine, body and soul. And it declares that it was part of the victory and triumph, not part of the passion. So where the epitome leaves those questions sort of unanswered and focuses more exclusively on the main point, the solid declaration will answer some of those questions. And again, it's, it's consistent with Luther's sermon that we'll talk about in that he focuses on the main point, as the epitome does here, but he also answers those key questions quite clearly, I think, in the sermon. All right, so we will definitely pick up that sermon then on the other side of the break, so please join us for that. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. On this Tuesday, June 2nd, 2020, KFUO Radio thanks our day sponsors, Jerry and Corrine Wolf of St. Louis, Missouri. Jerry and Corrine made a gift to KFUO Radio in thanksgiving to God for 47 years of marriage and the wonderful gift of five children, a daughter-in-law, a son-in-law, and two granddaughters. Thank you, Jerry and Corrine Wolf, for helping us share the gospel and for being today's KFUO Day Sponsors. And welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with the Reverend Dr. Jason Geller, who is the pastor of Pilgrim Lutheran Church in Kilgore, Texas, but also especially important for our conversation today here on Article 9 from the Epitome of the Formula of Concord, the teaching of Christ's descent into hell, is that Pastor Geller also worked on a translation of Luther's third sermon on Easter Day and is cited here in this article and Pastor Geller, it really seems that this sermon of Luther at Torgau in 1533, it seems to be a prime source, as you and I even talked about in the first half of the show, seems to be a prime source for the confessors in regards to the teaching for this article. So what can you tell us about this sermon? What makes it really important and foundational for us? Yes, it's interesting. As a, a student of theology at the seminary, you take a confessions class, and uh, we'd be going through the Book of Concord, and, and all once you get to Article 9 here, and it refers to this sermon. Now, there are other articles, as I'm sure your listeners know, where the formula refers to other writings of Luther's and gives them sort of what I've sometimes referred to as a deuteroconfessional status, this status like, if you want more information on this, look to this writing of Luther's. And most of those, um, to my knowledge, probably all of them, are available in the original 55-volume set of the American edition of Luther's works. And so you could go to the library if you didn't have those, and you could pull it off the shelf, and you could read that work of Luther's for yourself. So when we get to Article 9, and I remember asking one of my professors, so where do I find this sermon that I'm saying correctly teaches uh, about Christ's descent into hell? Well, it's in the German edition of Luther's works. Well, what if I don't read German? Well, then you just don't know, right? You have to subscribe to the confessional article without really even knowing what Luther says about it, what the confessions are therefore saying about it, by the way they refer to it here in Article 9. So 
it was one of those things to me where I felt like my education was inadequate because I couldn't just take down an edition of Luther's works in German and read it. And so as I served in the parish and, and wanted to continue my education, getting Latin and German was pretty critical to that, especially pursuing doctoral work. And so one of the things that I did then as I was studying medieval German was work with the woman who was eventually co-chair of my doctoral committee to translate this sermon of Luther's. And we found out that there was, in fact, an English translation that had been done by a gentleman by the name of David Trumper, who had been a student at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, and then eventually was involved with Concordia Seminary in exile in Chicago, and did most of his professional career teaching at Valparaiso. So he had done a translation in the late 1960s that was in a reference file in the St. Louis Seminary Library, but it wasn't something that anybody, you know, when I asked my seminary professor, where do I find this sermon in English, he wasn't pointing me to that file. So it wasn't like anybody really even knew it was out there. So we started working on our translation, and then around the same time, Robert Cole came out with a translation in a book that accompanied his and James Nessigen's Book of Concord, or Timothy Wengert's rather Book of Concord. And Jim Nessigen and, and Robert Kolb worked together on the Source of Context book. But it's Robert Kolb's translation that's published there. So it is out in a book form where people can refer to it today. I think Dr. Hoffner's and my translation is a little bit better. I think we were more accurate in a few places. And we certainly provide far more background and annotation to the translation. And the introduction is much more expensive. And I'm glad that Logia has made that available to the listeners of the program on, on the KFUO website. So the sermon really is where the, the confessors of the, the formula are going for the simple statement about the descent and how it should be taught in the Christian way. And as we look here at, at some sections of that, we'll see how Luther does that, I think, very well. Yeah, so definitely I want to thank again Logia Journal of Lutheran Theology for uh, allowing us to post that. And uh, listener, you'll be able to find that again at kfeo.org so that you can reference this as Dr. Geller here then walks us through, okay, so what are the main points then that relate to this article that, well, one, at least as you worked on it and went through it, you think this is why it was probably important for the confessors to reference this sermon in relation to this article. And then we'll kind of go from there then to talk about what are the main points that are really important for us in our confession when we get that sermon as well. So go ahead and highlight for us, what is it about this sermon that makes it a reference point for our confessors here? He does, as the article in the Epitome says, he explains this article in a completely Christian way, and he separates all the useless, unnecessary questions from it and encourages all godly Christians to believe with Christian simplicity. Sometimes we might find that sort of idea of simplicity or childlike understanding to be a little insulting, but it actually, you know, is really for our good. And we'll hear that in some of this from from Luther. So I'm going to just read a couple paragraphs here from the sermon. And we've numbered the paragraphs in our translation just for easy reference. So if somebody's looking at the PDF of the translation, I'm looking at paragraph 2, page 41. So Luther says, Because before he rose, he, Christ said, rose again and ascended into heaven, still lying in the grave, he also descended to hell, so that he set us free, too, who were to lie in prison therein. 
This is also the reason why he died and was laid in the grave, that he might bring out his own. I do not want to treat this article in a high and mighty fashion, theorizing how it happened or what it means to descend to hell. Instead, I want to remain with the simplest understanding of what these words mean, how one must explain them to children and the simple. For there have been many who have wanted to grasp the meaning with reason and their five senses. But with that approach, they have reached or achieved nothing, but instead only further digressed and strayed from the faith. For that reason, this method is the very safest for the person who wants to find the right way and not collide. Let him stick only to the word and picture them in the simplest way as best he can. So Luther talks about this picture, and he's not innovating here, as we mentioned before the break. This teaching of our Lord regarding the stronger man entering the house of the strong man and taking that, which otherwise appears to be his own, is really what permeates this picture of um, that Luther uses about Christ's descent into hell. And so he goes on to detail that picture a little bit in the next paragraph. So Luther again, accordingly, Christ is painted on the walls, descending with a cape and with a standard in his hand, reaching hell, and with it, with the standard, that is, beating and driving out the devil, storming hell, and bringing out his own. Just how the Easter Eve play portrays it for the children. I like that one has pictures, plays, songs, or stories for the simple. One should leave it like that and not be concerned with high, overly sophisticated thoughts, wondering how it could have happened, presuming that it had not taken place bodily inasmuch as he remained in the grave the three days. So Luther you know, uses this common sort of Berchterspiele, this Easter play idea of Christ coming in and taking the devil's possessions out of his fortress or his castle. In theological terms, this is called the harrowing of hell, this idea that hell, there are people trapped there in hell, and Christ goes in and takes them out. And it's sort of related to an old Roman Catholic idea, a false idea, called the limbo of the fathers, or limbo patra, that there's this outside room to hell. It's not quite in hell, but it's close to hell. And everybody in the Old Testament who died, believers, everyone in the Old Testament who were believers who died, were kept in this limbo of the fathers until the moment of Christ's descent. Then when the sacrifice had finally been made, then they're able to be brought out of hell and taken to heaven. But we know that that's not what Scripture teaches, because we have pictures, passages that refer to believers being in the Lord's presence and so forth in the Old Testament. So we know that people like Abraham and Noah and Moses are with the Lord and not, you know, in some holding area in hell waiting for Christ to descend and set them free. God is outside of time, and so he can certainly bring believers to himself in the Old Testament without having to wait until the moment of Christ's crucifixion, because he knows that that's coming. And so in that sense, he already is saving people in the Old Testament in light of their faith in the Messiah who is going to come and die for them. So the picture here of Christ descending into hell and bringing out his own teaches the main point that the descent into hell should give us, that is, that the devil has been defeated, that we do not have to be afraid of the power of the devil, that in our baptisms, this victory over the death and the devil is already ours. And that main point is communicated via this picture 
even if the passages that we refer to from Holy Scripture in support of the teaching of the dissent don't directly describe the dissent in those terms. We're using picture of a figure of speech, however you want to refer to it, to drive home this main point. So Luther does use this imagery in a number of places in the sermon. Another place where this comes up is sort of in paragraph eight, and this gets quoted by both the epitome and the solid declaration. And so this paragraph may be another one that's worth hearing at greater length. So this is now on page 42 from the Ligia article, paragraph 8, as we've numbered it, and I'll read here again as Luther writes. I speak about this because I see that the world now wants to be wise in the devil's name and to master and get to the bottom of everything in these articles of faith as it sees fit. So here, once the world hears that Christ descended into hell, it immediately wants to figure out how it happened and raises many long-winded, useless questions, whether the soul alone descended, or whether the Godhead was with it, also what he did there, and how he dealt with the devils, and many similar things about which, however, it can know nothing. But we should leave such useless questions and fix and bind our poor, simple hearts and thoughts onto the word of faith, and this would be the word of the creed, which says, I believe in the Lord Christ, God's Son, dead, buried, and descended into hell. That is, in the whole person, God and man, with body and soul undivided, from the virgin, born, suffered, dead, and buried. So I should not divide it here either, but believe and say that this self-same Christ, God and man, in one person, descended to hell, but not to remain therein. This is what the 16th Psalm said about him. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. But he is called soul here according to scriptural language, not like what we call souls being separated from our bodies, but the whole person, as he calls himself the holy one of God. So in that paragraph, Luther sort of has it both ways. He says that he wants to stick with the simple understanding and not get bogged down in these useless questions. That he, he doesn't even think he can know, but then he answers some of those questions, as we discussed in the first half, the questions that the Epitome's article raises about what manner of descent. Was it just the body? Was it just the soul? Was it humanity? Was it the divinity? And Lucia says it's the whole person. And, and we talked about that earlier, that in Article 8 on the person of Christ, the incarnation is total. You don't have part of the second person of the Trinity who is outside of the flesh of Jesus. And once that incarnation is made, certainly the humanity and the divinity are not separated at any point going forward to all eternity. And so to the extent to which there is a separation of the body and the soul of Christ in the moment of death, in the moment of the descent, as Luther describes it here, the body and the soul are together, even while the body is lying in the grave. So that, again, sort of blows our mind a little bit, like, wait a minute, what? How can he descend into hell with his body if his body is lying in the grave? Well, if we're asking that question, then we might as well also be asking the question, how can he be present in the Lord's Supper with his body when his body is in heaven? And that's the question that the Reformed ask and stumble at. They say he can't. And so they would have trouble with this article as well, this this idea that you can have the body of Christ in more than one place at a time. But if we properly understand the incarnation 
and the communication of the attributes, then we can understand that the man, Jesus, can and does do things as true God in human flesh that our human nature certainly don't normally do. So the teaching there of Luther to stick with the main point, the picture, the easy way to sort of understand it and describe it is there, and we see the epitome of the formula of Concord pick up on that. But he also answers these questions that the epitome raises, and the Solid Declaration picks up on that as it quotes some of these specific answers to those three questions. When did the descent take place? What manner of descent was it? And does it belong to the passion, or does it belong to the victory and triumph? And it affirms that it takes place after the burial, before the resurrection. It takes place in the whole Christ, human, divine, body, soul, and that is part of the victory and triumph. And there's a little side story here about some of our hymnody. There's a lovely hymn. My father confessor taught it to me when I was at Vicarage. When I would go for private confession and absolution, he would frequently have us sing this hymn, Christ is the World's Redeemer. And at that time, it was Lutheran worship, and we were singing it out of Lutheran worship. Well, when I got into the parish and was serving, I had a dual parish, and I would commute, and sometimes I would try to memorize parts of the hymn of the day as I was driving from one congregation to the next. And so one Sunday, this was the hymn of the day, and I was singing it in the car and pondered on this line in the hymn that said, down in the realm of darkness, he lay a captive bound. And I'm like, wait a minute, we don't believe that Christ laid as a captive in hell. He does not descend into hell as part of his suffering. Everything he suffers for us he completes the work. He says that it's finished. Telestine is done on the cross. So when he descends into hell, this is no longer suffering. It's no longer atoning anything. It's victory. It's triumph, as we've discussed. But this hymn that was in Lutheran worship, the way it was phrased, certainly seemed to go against that. And it can be rightly understood. But the phrasing that they've changed that to in Lutheran service book, in part because Pastors like myself contacted them and said, hey, what about this hymn and what about the way that this phrase is phrased? In Lutheran Service Book now, they've, they've redone that line. It actually is a better translation of the original Latin of the hymn. I think now it says he, down in the realm of darkness, he strode in victory or strode through hell in victory. And so it reflects better our confessional article here that Christ's descent into hell is part of his triumph and victory and not part of his continued suffering that was completed on the cross. So I think it's also a good example of where this particular doctrinal article is lived out in how we worship and, and how we pray and how we sing in our faith. And then by being faithful confessions of the faith in the hymns, we are teaching the faith as we worship then. So that's an interesting point related to that. Which is a really great point and something I want to come back to, especially because, as you've laid out here for us really well, Luther himself is really standing against common Roman Catholic teaching on the descent of Christ into hell, which may be more in line with that sort of line that we have in Lutheran worship that you quoted there about Christ being bound in hell. We see that show up in the Roman Catholic Catechism, I believe. But then also that he kind of does evangelism in hell and things like that. I believe that shows up in the Roman Catholic Catechism as well. And so I want to come back to where Luther stands with regard to this teaching. But first, I want to highlight something that you brought out right at the beginning. And, and I like how you drew 
everything together and basically laid out for us that if we want to ask these questions about Christ and how did he go down into hell and the body and soul to, or the whole soul, as you said, as Luther draws out in his sermon, but uh, body and spirit into hell and to keep it to that simple teaching. I like how keeping it to the simple teaching actually reflects the simple teaching of the creed itself because the creed just presents this presentation for us of Christ as body and or, or, or the God man, rather, I should say, through his birth, life, death, descent, and ascension, that when we talk about the incarnation all the way through the ascension, that it's always the God-man. It's the body and his spirit brought together in this beautiful union. And I saw that reflected even as you went through First Peter 3 for us too, that you're right, we get that more well-known part of First Peter 3 with reference to baptism and Noah being saved through the flood. But then also it ends there in including Christ's ascension. And so do you think it's important, and especially with relation to how Luther was preaching and in his sermon here, that we really do understand that all of this is connected, that when we're talking about Jesus, it's his incarnation, his life, his death, his descent, and his ascension, that we can think of all of those things connected together? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they are connected together. You know, sometimes I have issues with saying that the resurrection does something for us, right? This idea that that by Christ's resurrection, he brings about our resurrections. Well, not really. I mean, not in a strict sense, because again, everything that needed to be done for my redemption is done on the cross. The resurrection declares that, and it shows to the world that he has risen from the dead, that the Father accepted his sacrifice on our behalf, that his teaching is true, all these things that we attribute to the resurrection. But without the resurrection, there would be no knowledge of the fact that his sacrifice on the cross, certainly no knowledge on earth, that his sacrifice on the cross had done something for us. So they are all connected. They're all necessary parts of God's plan of salvation. Is being seated, as, as you rightly point out, that comes up there at the end of that First Peter 3 passage. He's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So that enthronement of the human nature on the well, yeah, the enthronement of the human nature on the throne, that's why we call it an enthronement, on the throne in heaven at the Father's right hand, is showing us what is eventually going to come of us, that that's our human nature, and we who believe will likewise ascend into heaven, or when Christ comes here to earth, you know, we'll have heaven here on earth, however you want to think of that. But even the return of Christ in judgment is all part of this, too, and that's why the Creed it really lists these articles together and it goes back to that idea of the Christian doctrine, the teaching as a brass ring or as a strand of pearls. And when you start to mess around with it at one point, you're going to get other things messed up. You cut the strand, you no longer have a strand of pearls. You've got a bunch of little individual pearls running all over the floor, but you don't have a strand anymore. And if you sever the brass ring, you don't have a ring. You know, you've got a partial ring. So... When we start to get one aspect of doctrine wrong, we're likely to get other aspects of doctrine wrong as well. And and there, I think the the Reformed really do have a problem with this idea that Christ cannot be present in two places. And so 
to what extent that's driving some of the controversy behind Article 9, we just can't say based on the way they introduce it here, at least, in the article from the epitome, because they don't get into that level of who the individual was and any potential alleged reformed influence driving that rejection of the dissent being done according to the human nature if the body is laying in the grave. But it certainly would not be out of the realm of possibilities that some of that false understanding of the incarnation is driving some of the false understanding of the dissent. All right. I'm going to throw a lot at you here, but we only have about three minutes left here. So I'm going to ask you to kind of wrap this up in three minutes if you can. But what is the gospel comfort for us that we don't get into? Is he bound in hell and down there preaching to the captives, sort of doing an evangelism model as, as the Catholic catechism might cite or, or Christ being present? How is it possible to get present in more than one place? I like what paragraph four says in the epitome article nine. It just says, it is enough if we know that Christ descended into hell, destroyed hell for all believers, and delivered them from the power of death and the devil, from eternal condemnation and the jaws of hell. And that seemed to be the real driving focus of Luther's sermon as well. So go ahead and wrap this all up together for us. What is the gospel comfort that Christ offers to us through his word in this teaching of Christ's descent into hell? Well, I think you just stole my answer. Uh, that first sentence from uh, paragraph four was, was going to be my easy, easy way of restating that. But instead, what I'll do is I'll, I'll read an, uh, just another sentence here from the sermon, beginning of paragraph 11. This might be the simplest way of speaking about this article, that one holds onto the words and clings to this, the main point. That is, that through Christ, hell is rent and the devil's reign and power are destroyed for us, for whom he died, was buried, and descended. And so this is all for us. Christ descends into hell. He declares victory over the powers of hell because he has defeated them on the cross. And he's done that for us. And he gives us that victory in our baptism. And Luther confesses this in the small catechism where the question is, what are the benefits that baptism gives? And we respond, right? It works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this, as the words and promises of God declare. And so the victory that we have over sin, death, and the power of the devil, Christ declares to the underworld in his descent. He declares to the, the world with his resurrection. And that victory is ours who receive it in faith by way of our baptism. That's the Reverend Dr. Jason Geller. Thank you so much for confessing so well for us today and joining us for Concord Matters and talking us through the confession of the pure and simple teaching for the sake of the gospel with regard to the doctrine of the descent of Christ to hell. We also want to thank Logia, a journal of Lutheran theology, for allowing us to post and share with our listeners the translation of Luther's third sermon on Easter Day, which was preached in Torgau in 1553 and was mentioned here in this article. Thank you very much, Logia. And thank you also for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church. <laughs>